Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Let me, without much ado, launch into the paper. Um, I hadn't quite thought about, and this is the only prefatory thing I think I want to say, I hadn't quite thought of the connection between Newman's conception of tradition as a form of progressive theological discernment and the step of conversion. It is actually very interesting, and, and of course, in Newman's case, obviously also personally vital conjunction. Um, I, it might be interesting, perhaps doing question and answer, to talk a little bit about that, because Newman, while he was certainly profoundly uh, engaged with the idea of conversion, or, and of course it became the pivotal moment in his life exactly at the midpoint of it, uh, he also harbored great doubts about uh, conversion as a tremendous risk and a step fraught with the ultimate responsibility. So he had a, an extremely uh, reflective and scrupulous relationship to, the, to that very step. But now let me turn to the talk. And I'll start with an epigraph actually chosen uh, from T.S. Eliot's four quartets from the last of the quartets, uh, Little Gidding. Uh, written in 1943. And what the dead had no speech for when living, they can tell you being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. We are born with the dead. See, they return and bring us with them. The aim of my remarks today is twofold. First, to reconstruct the intellectual landscape in which the theological retrieval of tradition unfolded during the first half of the 19th century, in particular, Newman's distinctive and influential appraisal of tradition as a form of development. Secondly, I wish to explore Newman's contention that the truth of Christianity and the demands it places on every individual are inseparable from the exegetical traditions and competing modes of theological inquiry wrought over the course of nearly two millennia. Neither systematic theology nor apologetics can ever disentangle themselves from the traditions of exegetical practice, metaphysics, and what Aquinas called sacra disciplina nor should they even wish to do so. Indeed, we shall find that for Newman in particular, the rationality of a theological tradition constitutes an incontrovertible case of what he calls implicit reason. First developed in his Oxford University sermons, this idea of an implicit rationality stems from yet another of Newman's seemingly counterintuitive insights namely that 18th century common sense empiricism, far from being the antagonist of normative theological reasoning, furnishes an indispensable template for it. In its Lockean version, 
A common sense theory of knowledge starts out from the premise that all human cognition originates in phenomena that are given to us. To know means, above all, to respond to something we have received, rather than to exercise unilateral jurisdiction over things we claim to have made. It furthermore means that objects of inquiry only ever present themselves to our attention in partial fashion. Hence, it is only by assenting to the sheer givenness and antecedent reality of impressions that we can achieve what, even then, will remain a necessarily incomplete view of objective realities. When presented with complex ideas, no less than, quote, with every day's occurrence, as Newman remarks, quote, we meet them not with suspicion and criticism, but with a frank confidence, end quote. The def default from which inquiry starts, then, is faith and trust, subsequently fine-tuned by ongoing reflection on the notions and realities placed before us. As Newman puts it, we do not begin with doubting, but prove them by using them, by applying them. So much by way of a conceptual preamble. Now let me offer a few remarks on how the idea of tradition had been framed by the time that Newman arrives on the scene. As is well known, the Enlightenment, going all the way back to Hobbes and Descartes' anti-Aristotelian and anti-scholastic views, had been fiercely critical of tradition, repudiating tradition-based forms of inquiry as so much prejudice is an integral feature of Enlightenment thought, culminating in figures like Spinoza and the French encyclopedists. Conversely, in his Reflections on the Revolution in France from November 1790, Edmund Burke had predicted how the wholesale expurgation of tradition would eventually end up radicalizing the French Revolution then just underway, and in time would bring about, bring about the utter destruction of the ancient regime and of Catholic ecclesial, ecclesiastic and monastic structures on which that regime had rested for nine centuries. Now this is not the place to rehearse a long and convoluted story of how, among other things, the French Jacobins' violent application of the Enlightenment's anti-traditionalist legacy eventually succumbed to the hubris that we know by the name of Napoleon. Rather more pertinent to Newman's intellectual formation, however, is the climate of conservatism that establishes itself in European intellectual and political culture after 1815, at which point, of course, Napoleon has definitively left the scene. Integral to this age of restoration, as it is often called, is a certain rehabilitation of tradition, such as we find it in the political theories of Adam Müller, Friedrich Genz, Chateaubriand, de Mestre, and closer to home, in the Tory humanism, as it's sometimes been called, of the later Wordsworth, or in the high churchmanship of Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Given the comprehensive political realignment of post-Waterloo Europe, it cannot surprise that the idea of tradition should have temporarily merged with the spirit of reaction against most or indeed all things modern. The conjoined and entrenched interests of king, church, and the members of the French aristocracy 
tend to fuse the idea of tradition with the politics of stagnation, resentment, and repression. Yet once we turn from the political to the intellectual culture of European Romanticism, and more specifically to theological inquiry, additional features begin to complicate the picture that we have. Caught up in Romanticism's characteristic blend of exuberance and ambivalence, theology finds itself increasingly under pressure by two competing and influential frameworks, sentimentalism and historicism. Now both prove, as we will see, sharply at odds with Newman's lifelong concern with the idea of development, namely the idea that an original depositum fidei will reveal its full implications only in the course of many generations, and in so doing, constitute itself as a bona fide tradition. By contrast, both sentimentalism and historicism posit the inherent superiority of the present as the moment when the past has been definitively overcome, either in the guise of objective empirical knowledge, the claim of historicism, or alternatively, by absorbing the past into an emotively charged inward recollection, sentimentalism. In either scenario, Inquiry remains grounded in the Enlightenment's anthropomorphic conception of knowledge as something that is not received, but unilaterally produced. Drawing on elements of 17th century pietism and Lockean hedonism, the sentimentalist framework premises that the sources of human condition, uh, human, human cognition, are found in the volatile and mesmerizing play of human passion. For the romantic heirs of Rousseau, who, as Charles Taylor puts it, had immensely enlarged the scope of the inner voice, accessing an as yet untapped potential of a pre-conscious past also requires new modes of expression. And yet, even as sentimentalism invests the past with oblique significance, it firmly rejects the objectivity of tradition as an alien constraint on the individual's emotional and spiritual flourishing. Among sentimentalism's various formal innovations, one in particular turns out to be distinctly relevant to Newman's understanding of tradition as a case of progressive retrieval. It concerns the so-called Bildungsroman, one of Romanticism's major formal innovations, designed to trace the intellectual and spiritual development of its typically youthful protagonist. A distant heir of the platonic motif of anamnesis, remembering or recollection, romantic narratives of personal growth and cultivation hinge on a retrogressive operation of memory. The Bildungsroman genre in particular thus recovers unsuspected potentialities in the past of its protagonist, potentialities which now are recognized to have fueled his or her development all along. Romantic accounts of aesthetic play and the role of chance in the development of the modern individual thus involve a persistent tension between the oblique and distant sources of the self and their gradual retrieval 
by an authorial voice now eager to take control over its own genesis. As Wordsworth puts it in his famous autobiographical poem, The Prelude, from 1805, there is, quote, a dark, invisible workmanship that reconciles discordant elements and makes them move in one society. Now, in time, Newman himself also paid tribute to the Bildungsroman with his 1848 novel, Loss and Gain, a work distinguished by the care with which its mostly dialogic action avoids the genre sentimentalism, self-absorption, or ironic prevarication. If these features tend to define Romanticism's imaginative commerce with the past, Newman just as pointedly distrusts them. As he puts it in 1841, if we attempt to effect a moral improvement by means of poetry, we shall but mature into a mawkish, frivolous, and fastidious sentimentalism. For Newman, Romanticism's preoccupation with subjective states and opinions is destined to expire in a relativism and agnosticism that had become integral features of early Victorian latitudinarian culture. Thus he demurs at the prevailing view that, quote, truth and falsehood in religion are today but not, inten but not intended, uh, but are today but a matter of opinion that one doctrine is as good as another, that the governor of the world does not intend that we should gain the truth, that there is no truth, that no one is answerable for his opinions, that they are a matter of necessity or accident, and that it is enough if we sincerely hold what we profess." End quote. Newman also rejects another core axiom of romantic sentimentalism and the modern liberalism that flows from it namely the assumption that, the, that spiritual and philosophical meanings are not only generated within, but also confined to the private judgment and biographical time span of the solitary individual. Newman's early work on the pre-Nicene fathers and the Arian heresy had already alerted him to the hazards of a strictly subject-centered conception of Christianity. Unsurprisingly, he regards the rise of rationalism in contemporary theology as an inevitable reaction against, quote, the revival of religious feeling during the last century, spread not by talents or learning in its upholders, but by their piety, zeal, and sincerity, and its own incidental and partial truth. As Newman sees it, any theology that does not arise from and in continuous response to a rich and deep tradition, will end up resembling the very paganism that it purports to have overcome. In the last of his Oxford University sermons, Newman expressly links fourth century Arianism to liberal Protestantism's perpetual vacillation between an ephemeral sentimentalism and the arid objectivity of historicist methods. The resulting view, and here's a longer quote, has no theology. So far as it is heresy, it has none. Deduct its remnant of Catholic theology and what remains? Polemics, explanations, protests. It turns to biblical criticism or to the evidences of religion for want of a province. Its formulae end in themselves without development, 
because they are words. They are barren because they are dead. It develops into dissolution, but it creates nothing. It tends to no system. Its resultant dogma is but the denial of all dogmas, any theology under the gospel. Heresy denies to the church what it is wanting in itself. This is from the Oxford, uh, 15th of the Oxford University sermons. Now, in his essay on the development of Christian doctrine, Newman questions the Protestant tendency of dispensing with historical Christianity altogether and of forming a Christianity from the Bible alone, rejecting a theology that, quote, scarcely recognizes the fact of 12 long ages, which lie between the councils of Nicaea and Trent. Newman gives epigrammatic expression to his own obverse position. I quote, to be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant. Now this large, last remark warrants further scrutiny, for it points to Newman's misgivings about the Romantic era's other conceptual framework, historicism. In its dom dominant theological form, that of the so-called higher biblical criticism, first shaped by Wolf, Eichhorn, Ernesti, and the Tübingen School, and subsequently extended in the controversial writings of Strauss, Feuerbach, Comte, Renan, and others, historicism secures theological meanings only at the expense of their relevance. Like another institutional creation of the Romantic era, the modern museum, historicism posits that to know is not to participate in meanings, but rather to quarantine them within value-neutral past contexts. To do so, therefore, is but to reenact the Enlightenment's professed emancipation from history by arresting and inventorying that past, draining it of its relevance, and by reconstructing the old because it is old. 19th century historicism marks the culmination of a process long in the making, one described by Hans Frey as, quote, a kind of detachment of the real historical world from its biblical description, and the consequent uh, logical distinction and a reflective distance between the stories and the quote-unquote reality they depict. By methodically construing the past as a web of material causes and background references, historicism betrays its underlying discomfort with the possibility that there might be meanings issuing from the past and staking an enduring and potentially transformative claim on the present, precisely what Newman understands by the development of an idea into a substantive tradition. As Hans-Georg Gadamer puts it, quote, the historical consciousness that emerges in Romanticism involves a radicalization of the Enlightenment. For nonsensical tradition, which had been the exception, has now become the rule for Romanticism's historical consciousness, meaning that is generally accessible through reason is so little believed that the whole of the past is understood only historically. As early as the mid-1830s, Newman had begun to raise very similar questions. In Tract 73, on the introduction of rationalistic principles into religion from February 1836, 
He demurs at the shallow confidence that animates historicist and contextualizing methods. Such a quest for an instantaneous and exhaustive knowledge of Christianity only ends up impoverishing an exegetical and reflective tradition that had taken shape in the course of two millennia. For Newman, the great weakness of rationalistic principles is that they preclude human flourishing, which crucially involves one's considered participation in various intellectual and theological traditions. Instead, historicism stipulates a priori that the meaning of any tradition, including Christianity, is to be dissolved into finite and exclusively man-made contexts. And yet, at the beginning of Western culture, a nearly obverse understanding prevails, namely of tradition as something received rather than made and of divine rather than anthropomorphic provenance. Thus, Plato insists that tradition can be understood only, quote, as a gift of gods to men, tossed down from some divine source, end quote. A divine bequest to human communities, rather than an anthropomorphism in its own right then, tradition, according to Plato, is said to spring from and, from and point back to its transcendent source. Quote, the people of old, superior to us and living in closer proximity to the gods, have bequeathed us this tale, that whatever is said to be consists of one and many, having in its nature limit and unlimitedness, end quote. What distinguishes the role of the ancients then is not that they originated a tradition, they did not, but that they stood in closer temporal proximity to its divine source. Newman evidently concurs, observing that, quote, when nothing is revealed, nothing is known, and there is nothing to contemplate or marvel at. But when something is revealed, and only something, for all cannot be, they are forthwith difficulties and perplexities. What is most integral to Christianity turns out to be the most vexing to modern historical method, namely that, quote, revelation consists of a number of detached and incomplete truth belonging to a vast system unrevealed of doctrines and injunctions mysteriously connected together, these being Newman's phrases. Lurking behind historicism's apparent impatience with a continuously developing tradition, Newman detects a visceral discomfort on the part of modern thought with the possibility of knowledge received on terms that we cannot control. Yet to relinquish dominion over what we are given is precisely what is required if tradition is to become intelligible at all. And joining us to cultivate humility and gratitude vis-a-vis -vis what it offers, a tradition fulfills what Paul Griffiths has identified as the twofold characteristic of the gift. It is a distinctive group of things, quote, that can be given away without being thereby lost to the giver, yet which will be lost if they are not given away. Furthermore, what troubles Newman about the ascendancy of historical method is its propensity to disaggregate core features of Christian thought that, on his view, are inseparably entwined and mutually supporting, such as the doctrines 
of atonement, revelation, justification, the account of incarnation and redemption and others besides. When subjected to historicist protocol, a tradition of two millennia shrinks into just another anthropomorphism and so reveals itself as an unwitting descendant of the Aryan heresy that Newman had scrutinized early in his career. As he puts it, it must be ever small and superficial, viewed only as received by man, and is vast only when considered as that external truth into which each Christian may grow continually. Historicism thus forecloses on what, in Newman's view, is the enduring and progressive actualization of past teaching. Hence his phrasing, precise as always, that to be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant. And to be in history is to find oneself not at the end point of it, but instead in the midst of a reflective, transgenerational passing on of meanings long in the making. Put differently, knowledge of the past is inseparable from our considered involvement in that past. To know a tradition is to acknowledge one's interpretive entanglement with it. The antecedent reality and richness of exegetical and theological traditions requires of us continuously evolving forms of hermeneutic attention. Thus transformed by, rather than detached from, the knowledge so gained, theology also reveals the organic and fortuitous operations of memory. For, and I quote, what is memory itself but a vast magazine of dormant but present and excitable ideas? End quote. That is a progressive awakening from implicit to explicit reason, to use Newman's phrase again, and to the realization that all along one was, quote, possessed, ruled, and guided by an unconscious idea. Newman, especially in his late Anglican phase, recognizes that a responsible engagement with tradition must be informed by a constant awareness of a totality of received meanings whose ultimate significance can never be secured by discrete historical pronouncements, nor, it would seem, by institutional fiat. Yet here a fundamental problem opens up. How, according to Newman, does the idea of a developing tradition calibrate the relationship between open-ended hermeneutic discovery on the one hand and definitive institutionally sanctioned doctrine, doctrine pronounced by the church magisterium on the other. Put differently, can the idea of a developing tradition ever furnish more than a provisional authority for pronouncements on, religious, uh, on matters of religious truth? To understand Newman's position on this crucial point, we ought to start by re-examining the various criteria that Newman regards as constitutive of a continuously evolving theological tradition. First, tradition simultaneously tempers and guides human judgment. Not coincidentally, the essay on the development of Christian doctrine opens with Newman musing on the constant propensity of human beings to form judgments. Such activity is not gratuitously evaluative, but on the contrary, unfolds as a continual reconciling of discrete aspects, as he puts it, 
Thus, we compare, contrast, abstract, generalize, connect, adjust, classify. Having gestated long before the mind ventures any explicit proposition about this or that thing, judgment thus reveals the operation of what in his university sermons Newman calls implicit reason. Unlike discursive and propositional reasoning, judgment forges connections, registers similarities, hazards preliminary classifications, and so creates a conceptual grid that enables human beings to assimilate and respond to new phenomena as they give themselves to us. In time, Newman put, as Newman puts it, the judgments we have thus made become aspects in our mind of the things which meet us. In emphasizing the frequently oblique nature of mental activity, oblique but not irrational, Newman already identifies a feature also defining of entire traditions of inquiry, namely their highly adaptive and self-revising mode of operation. The vast and diverse array of representations to which judgment gives rise furnishes the very matrix that enables individuals gradually to discriminate between substantive insight and ephemeral opinion between notions enjoying some degree of probability and transient impressions destined to be defeated by future experience. Those representations that have persisted since first being formed, revised, and tested by the trial of experience furnish us with a blueprint of what Newman understands by a tradition. Hence, even as all judgment begins as a prejudicium, a prejudice in that sense, its repeated testing by the passage of time also prevents it from deteriorating into a purely subjective, willful assertion. A second feature of tradition shows its movement to extend both forward toward greater clarity and, back and backward in an attempt to connect present theological insight with its often distant sources. Speaking of the doctrine of the Trinity, early in the essay on the development of doctrine, Newman thus proposes that in order, quote, to give a deeper meaning to their letter, we must interpret the documents of pre-Nicaea by the times which came after. So almost a deliberate sort of anachronism. Um, consistent with the organic development of tradition, later insights do not reverse but perfect what has gone before. Just as we elucidate the text by comment, though, or rather because the comment is fuller and more explicit than the text. For Newman, the adaptive and self-revising pattern of individual reasoning and biographical time also characterizes the development of interpretive communities across many generations. Just as ordinary object perception only ever affords us a limited and partial view of the thing at any one time, so a theological idea or conception will not divulge its full import all at once. Since, quote, an idea is not brought home to the intellect as objective except through the variety of its aspects, end quote, it is only in the succession of entire generations that, quote, judgments and aspects will accumulate as one view will be modified or expanded by another and then combined with a third. 
Implicitly, then, Newman's concept of tradition supervenes on Romanticism's ideal of an autonomous subject wholly unconstrained in its private judgments on matters of faith. Yet even as Newman rejects sentiment and emotion as adequate sources of religious meaning, he also resists the impersonal and prevaricating conception of the past developed by 19th century historicism. A third feature of tradition now emerges, namely the fusion of intellectual and ethical values in the practice of studiositas, of studiousness, which is what invests our engagement of a tradition with humility. Those who approach a tradition in the spirit of studiousness rather than transient curiosity will not be tempted to, quote, sequester, own, possess, or dominate what they hope to know. They want instead to participate lovingly in it and to respond to it knowingly as a gift rather than as potential possession. This is again a quote from Paul Griffiths, uh, Intellectual Appetite, a wonderful book. I can highly recommend it. In approaching tradition as the ongoing development of an idea that can never be sequestered or possessed, theology discovers its dialectical and dynamic nature. At its core lies the deposit of faith or mystery as originally revealed in scripture and apostolic testimony. And those subsequently concerned with it must indeed religiously adhere, as Newman puts it, to the form of words and the ordinances under which revealed truth comes to us." End quote. And yet, as Newman points out, biblical testimony is no more self-interpreting than any other text. It needs completion, as he phrases it, which the transgenerational labor of scriptural hermeneutics continues to provide. The resulting tradition of some 1,800 years of exegetical practice and theological reflection will in turn furnish the guiding framework for any future efforts in this area. As Newman points out, the palimpsest-like nature of theological and exegetical traditions is actually already embedded in the typological organization of scripture itself. Thus, as he points out, the whole Bible not its prophetical portions only, is written on the principle of development. He elaborates the point much in the spirit of romantic organicism. Quote, the earlier prophecies are pregnant texts out of which the succeeding announcements grow. They are types. It is not the first one that the first one truth is told and then another, but, that, but the whole truth or large portions of it, are told at once, yet only in their rudiments or in miniature. And they are expanded and finished in their parts as the course of revelation proceeds." End quote. In its intricate and dynamic textual presentation, scripture thus anticipates the principle of development and also defines our mode of response to it. For it presents us with, quote, a structure so unsystematic and various and a style so figurative and indirect that no one would presume at first sight to say what is in it and what is not, end quote. And in language strongly reminiscent of the romantic organicism that we find in the writings of Goethe or Coleridge, 
Newman regards scripture as, quote, a germ afterwards to be developed, a challenge that I've certainly suggested by now neither enthusiasm nor scientific or historical method can ever fully meet. What, in Newman's view, sets scientific and hermeneutic rationality apart is their fundamentally different outlook on risk and contingency. Scientific inquiry essentially seeks to minimize the unknown and any unknown factors so as to maintain the greatest possible control over its findings. By contrast, interpretive knowledge is essentially a risk-taking and provisional endeavor. To be a rational participant in the tradition of inquiry means to put to the test the very reality of its underlying idea. Doing so requires our undesigning receptivity to all the articulations that a specific theological conception has received to date. Hermeneutic activity, interpretive activity, can appraise the truth value of texts issuing from the past only by admitting to the provisional and contingent nature of its own procedures and discoveries, something that also is brought out by Newman's frequent references to contingency, to chance, and to risk throughout the essay. Like evolution in the realm of biology, development for Newman is an adventitious process, impossible to control or predict by any method that would assign us a place outside of it. Hence, Newman draws a sharp distinction between the scientific method that, on Bacon's account, could ill afford to stipulate any antecedent faith commitments, and reason as it operates in the domains of history, ethics, and religion. Quote, since it does not really perceive anything, but is a faculty of proceeding from things that are perceived to things which are not, modern scientific method is inapposite to ethical inquiry and scriptural exegesis. For, the latter, for these latter pursuits to flourish, reason must be a, quote, living, spontaneous energy within us. Hence, scriptural exegesis and the theological reflection, and I quote a longer passage, is not an effect of wishing and resolving or of forced enthusiasm or of any mechanism of reasoning or of any mere subtlety of intellect, but comes of its own innate power of expansion within the mind in its season, though with the use of reflection, argument, and original thought, more or less as it may happen, with a dependence on the ethical growth of the mind itself and with a reflex influence upon it. Again, the parable of the leaven describes the development of doctrine in another respect, in its active, engrossing, and interpenetrating power." End quote. Now, Newman's distinctive fusion of cogency and eloquence, here and throughout his oeuvre, reflects his underlying intuition that the force of philosophical, theological, or for that matter, literary knowledge pivots on revealing to readers how they have been implicated in the writing all along. What is truly at stake in and confers direction on a developing tradition is our own spiritual and intellectual flourishing, rather than proof of some abstract proposition. 
Hence, the development of an idea is not agnostically presented as some historical account or intellectual demonstration. Rather, its continued unfolding attests to a community that encompasses all generations, past and present. Hence, my choice of the Eliot epigraph, which we are born with the dead see, they bring us with them. Fourth, a key question on which Newman's position undergoes crucial change between 1838 and 1845 concerns whether the yield of exegesis is not, quote, all in scripture, but part in tradition only, as the Romanists say, or as the English church says, that though it is in tradition, it can also be gathered from the communications of scripture. Rightly understood, the narrative pattern wrought by tradition will be dialectical in kind. As Alistair McIntyre has pointed out, dialectic is the instrument of inquiry which is still in via underway, whereas in demonstrative reasoning, we argue from first principles, in dialectical reasoning, we argue to first principles. The passage that I think uh, McIntyre has in mind here is presumably a passage in the sort of early in the Sophist from Plato, where he talks about this quite directly. Being in integrative rather than disjunctive in its operation, dialectical narrative advances our knowledge by way of retroactive clarification, issuing from the awareness that first principles are precisely what we do not grasp the underlying ethical stance is one of reflective involvement rather than peremptory skepticism. To be a participant in the dialectical movement of a tradition is to recognize oneself as both the agent and the witness of its continued unfolding. Indeed, we are always situated within traditions, as Gadamer puts it, and this is no objectifying process. That is, we do not conceive of what tradition says as something other or alien, it is already part of us, end quote. Wherever individuals judge and reason about commitments, ends, and goods, they do so by moving, however unwittingly, within some specific tradition of inquiry and by becoming progressively more adept in the art of dialogue with the past voices of which that tradition is comprised. To understand in such an exploration means above all to recognize how ostensibly distant voices impinge on our specific situation, and in so doing allow our self-understanding to undergo continual development. Whereas historicism entrusts itself to specific empirical methods so as to tabulate verifiable and supposedly value-neutral information, Inhabiting a tradition means to acknowledge its proximity to us, not its distance from us. The conception set forth in Newman's essay anticipates Hans-Georg Gadamer's view that, quote, interpretation is never an occasional post facto supplement to understanding, but rather is the most explicit form of understanding. Now, Gadamer, in, in a book from 1960, a very influential book in continental philosophy known as Truth and Method, um, and in 1975 first translated very badly and then now available in a rather improved one, improved translation, 
uh, and a book I can certainly recommend. Gadamer specifies in that book that human interpretive practice consists of three distinct and complementary activities, or as he puts them, calls them arts, in the sense of the Aristotelian sense of art as techne. There is first what Gadamer calls the subtilitas intelligendi, or understanding. Then there is a subtilitas interpretandi, interpretation. And finally, there is the subtilitas applicandi, the task of application. Specifically, the last skill, that of application, had been both an integral feature and the ultimate aim of legal and biblical interpretation prior to being contested by the rise of 19th century historicism. Like Newman, whom, as far as I know, by the way, I don't think Gadamer ever read, although by now we have books on Newman and Gadamer. It's actually fascinating. Um, like Newman, Gadamer considers it, quote, obvious that the task of hermeneutics was to adapt the text's meaning to the concrete situation to which the text is speaking, end quote. Viewed cumulatively, these countless acts of reasoned interpretation and reflected judgment intimate an underlying teleological structure. Yet they do so only in a qualified sense, since the kind of knowledge incrementally yielded by our involvement with a tradition cannot be independently verified by some extraneous positivistic method. Proceeding ever so cautiously, Newman thus notes that when investing doctrinal developments with teleological significance, we only ever trade in probabilities. For by its very nature, finite human intelligence can never transcend outright the dialectical progression by which it is constituted. What validates the rationality and coherence of our interpretations, then, is not some independent methodological scheme, but the increasingly effective application in everyday life and reflection. Similarly, Gadamer had pointed out that legal and theological hermeneutics are exemplary cases of what it means to engage a specific tradition of inquiry. In both cases, he points out, there is an essential tension between the fixed text, the law or the gospel, on the one hand, and on the other, the sense arrived at by applying it to the concrete moment of interpretation. A law, as he points out, does after all not exist in order to be understood historically, but to be concretized in, legal, in its legal validity by being interpreted. As Gadamer's legal example suggests, there is a markedly impersonal aspect to the way in which the authority of tradition constitutes itself. And yet the concepts that help us draw out this element are not those of method, objectivity, and verification. For a proper engagement with a specific tradition of inquiry involves suspending any quest for epistemological dominion or ownership over its contents. Instead, the learner must cultivate humility and studiousness in relation to it. Already a strong implication in Newman's account, this cultivation of epistemological humility receives particular emphasis in the work of T.S. Eliot, who likewise conceives humility not as a state of passivity, but as a virtue to be actively cultivated. 
as he argues in his 1919 essay, Tradition and the Individual Talent, one's proper stance vis-a-vis -a, -vis a given tradition is active, participatory, and interpretive. There is nothing epigonal about it. Where tradition is concerned, a quote, blind or timid adherence should be positively discouraged. Rather, you must obtain tradition by great labor and specifically by cultivating a perception not only of the pastness of the past, but of its present presence. A fierce and incisive critic of sentimentalism in all its romantic guises, Eliot emphasizes the impersonal, kinotic quality that defines the engagement of a tradition, a stance that also fundamentally informs his practice as a poet. What happens in the writing of poetry, Eliot observes, is a continual surrender of, of the poet himself as he is at the moment to something which is more valuable, meaning he is not constructed or imposed, but reflexively distilled inasmuch as the individual foregoes the present spurious comforts of subjective emotion or self-possession. As Eliot was to put it in four quartets, the only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. Likewise for Newman, the epistemological analog of such humility is found, quote, in the characteristic of our minds that they cannot take an object in, that they cannot take an object in which is submitted to them simply and integrally. Whole objects do not create in the intellect whole ideas, but are, to use a mathematical phrase, thrown into a series, into a number of statements, strengthening, correcting each other, and with more or less exactness approximating, as they accumulate, to a perfect image. An integral feature of theological and humanistic inquiry, then, concerns the necessarily partial and provisional nature of understanding that can be under achieved in the course of an individual life and how interpretive knowledge of all kinds remains productively enmeshed with the long durée of tradition. Whereas historicist procedure pivots on the assumption of an epistemologically superior now, what the German philosopher Hans Blumenberg calls Jetztzeit, the time of the present, tradition dynamically entwines two temporal planes, which, following Blumenberg, we can identify as biographical time, Lebenszeit, the time we are individually allotted to pursue life and knowledge, and cosmic time, Weltzeit. Only, as Blumenberg puts it, only by renouncing its claim to be the measure of all things is the individual subject enabled to fathom the meaning of its existence. Our challenge thus becomes to describe this gradual maturation of subjectivity, understood as a balancing of resignation and fulfillment, renunciation and expectation." End quote. It is this process which Gadamer refers to as our immersion in a process of tradition, that we discern the, uh, that it is here that we discern the enduring relevance and fecundity of specific traditions of inquiry, and thus join the interpretive community of those living 
who have before us forged and creatively inhabited the tradition in question. In so assenting to the authority of a tradition, we achieve a measure of humility, understood not as a retreat from knowledge, but our, as our distinctive mode of approaching it. Newman's observation that truth, quote, is not the heritage of any individual, it is absolute and universal, not only acknowledges a reality that will constrain, always constrain, our subjective quest for understanding, it also shows that very fact to be the ethical ground zero for all human inquiry. Thank you very much. Good evening. I have to hold up the discussion uh, that I'm sure you're eager to enter into uh, just a little bit while I offer this response to uh, Professor Pao's uh, paper on Newman on tradition. And I'm delighted to respond to uh, his paper. He is a really serious student of Newman who has read widely and deeply in Newman's works. I learn new things about Newman when I see him with the eyes of Professor Pfau, and I have learned new things from Professor Pfau about doctrinal development in Newman. Now, we commonly put something into relief by means of making some revealing contrast with it. Thus, when I try to explain to my students what phenomenology is, I find it helpful to contrast phenomenology with distinctly unphenomenological ways of philosophizing. Now, if we listen closely to what Professor Pfau says about Newman's idea of development, we constantly discern the following contrast. Newman does not treat revelation as just a body of propositions warranted by the magisterium of the church. Newman does not treat doctrinal development as merely a matter of deducing in later doctrines what is logically contained in earlier ones. Professor Pfau thinks that Newman's understanding of doctrinal development stands in contrast with what might be called a rationalistic understanding of development, that is, an understanding of development that overrates the role of doctrinal propositions and of the formal logical relations obtaining among those propositions. And I quite agree that there is such an anti-rationalism in Newman, and we see it in many levels of his thought, not only in his thought on doctrinal development. When I got to the end of writing my book, The Personalism of John Henry Newman, I realized that almost all the aspects of his thought that I was calling personalist had an anti-rationalist edge to them. Let's look into Newman's apologia for a specimen of his anti-rationalism. This is the work in which Newman gives an account to posterity of his transition from the Church of England to the Roman Catholic Church. And after describing how it would often happen that people would approach him in the years while he was still searching with logical reasons for moving faster to Rome, Newman says, I felt altogether, quote, I felt altogether the force 
of the maxim of St. Ambrose, non in dialectica complacuit Deo, salvum facere populum suum, it has not pleased God to redeem his people by means of logic. I had a great dislike of paper logic. For myself, it was not logic that carried me on. As well might one have said that the quicksilver in the barometer changes the weather. It is the concrete being that reasons. Pass a few years, and I find my mind in a new place. How? The whole man moves. Paper logic is but the record of it. All the logic in the world would not have made me move faster toward Rome than I did. Great acts take time. End of that quote. Now, of course, Newman does not reject uh, logic and with it all acts of reason. He's not an irrationalist or a blind fideist. But he thinks that there is a kind of reasoning that is different from and richer than formal logic. The reasoning that drew him toward Rome was a kind of reasoning that engages the whole man and not just the abstract intellect. In his great work, The Grammar of Ascent, Newman explores this holistic form of thinking and reasoning under the title of the illative sense. Since we are invested with our whole being in exercising the illative sense, it is an eminently personalist kind of reasoning that we exercise. And the illative sense is subject to mysterious rhythms of growth, in contrast to demonstrative reasoning where conclusions can be drawn at any time and in an instant. It was then by his illative sense that Newman thought his way into the Catholic Church, and the Apologia reveals to us the working of his illative sense. After Newman was received into the church, he continued to refuse to explain his move in strictly logical terms. Thus, in 1846, the year after he was received into the church, someone asked him to publish a brief account of his reasons for converting. He answered, and I quote a letter, vintage Newman, I do not know how to do justice to my reasons for becoming a Catholic in ever so many words, but if I attempted to do so in few, and that in print, I should wantonly expose myself and my cause to the hasty and prejudiced criticisms of opponents. This I will not do. People shall not say, we have now got his reasons and know their worth. No, you have not got them. You cannot get them, except at the cost of some portion of the trouble I have been at myself. <laughs> you cannot buy them for a crown piece. You must consent to think. Moral proofs are grown into, not learned by heart. End of that quote I took. That phrase, you must consent to think, is the title of one of my chapters in my book on Newman's personalism. Now, in this passage, Newman adds the idea that the, by, by the illative sense, we move toward the truth by using more strands of thought than we can formulate in propositions. He says in another place that the propositions we formulate are only specimens 
of the many non-formulated reasons that the illative sense works with. Now, you might want to stop me at this point and say to me, our subject tonight is Newman's theory of the doctrinal development that we see in the church over the centuries, and not his account of his own personal development toward Catholicism. But the two levels of development are not so different. In the essay on doctrinal development, Newman says, quote, the development then of an idea is not like the investigation worked out on paper in which each successive advance is a pure evolution from a foregoing, but it is carried on through and by means of communities of men and their leaders and guides, and it employs their minds as its instruments and depends on them while it uses them." End of that quote. Perhaps we could say that the community of the church has a kind of collective illative sense, and then we could call the development of doctrine in human sense nothing other than the church thinking through revelation by means of this ecclesial illative sense. Newman's alternative, then, to the rationalistic account of doctrinal development would be the account of development in terms of the illative sense as exercised by the entire ecclesial community. Now, in his lecture tonight and in other writings, Professor Pau unpacks this alternative, non-rationalistic account of doctrinal <coughs> development given by Newman. He says much that helps us to grasp the originality of Newman. He makes interesting use of the work of Gadamer on hermeneutics in interpreting Newman. But my duty as commentator requires that I raise issues for discussion. So let me put on the table an important question that Professor Pau raised, and I quote him, can the idea of a developing tradition ever furnish more than a provisional authority for pronouncements on matters of faith? Can it ever yield definitive, institutionally sanctioned doctrine pronounced by the church magisterium? End of the quote. Now, this would not be a question at all within the setting of a deductive account of doctrinal development. If you deduce from earlier doctrines some later doctrine that follows in strict logic from the earlier ones, then of course the later one is as definitive as the earlier ones, and there is no reason why it should be only provisional. It is because doctrinal development is driven not by the deductive intellect, but by the illative sense, that it might seem to be more open-ended and to yield only provisional results. So again, um, the question posed by uh, Professor Pfau, can definitive institutionally sanctioned doctrine pronounced by the church magisterium emerge from doctrinal development as understood by Newman? And it seems to me that Professor Pfau doubts very much that this is possible. In another essay entitled Tradition, 
which seems to be an expanded version of the lecture we just heard, Professor Paul says that the doctrine of papal infallibility is, quote, all but impossible to reconcile with Newman's theory of development, end quote. And he says that Newman verges on sophistry when he defends papal infallibility as a legitimate doctrinal development. And it follows, I think, that Professor Pfau has a substantive disagreement with Newman, a disagreement that is strangely muted in the text of Professor Pfau. For Newman thinks that definitive, irreformable doctrines do emerge from doctrinal development. The affirmation of such doctrines is fundamental to Newman's anti-liberalism. Recall the name that Newman gives to the principle that is opposed to liberalism and that he defended throughout his life. He calls it the dogmatical principle. And recall what Newman tells us in the Apologia about his conversion at age 15. I quote, when I was 15, a great change of thought took place in me. I fell under the influences of a definite creed and received into my intellect impressions of dogma, which through God's mercy have never been effaced or obscured." End of quote. How does a creed exist? How does dogma exist if not in definite, precisely formulated doctrinal propositions that are accepted as irreformable? Consider what the Athanasian Creed meant to Newman. In a sermon for Trinity Sunday, Newman is anticipating the beatific vision, and he speaks of, quote, the sight of the blessed three, the holy three, the three that bear witness in heaven, in light unapproachable, the Father God, the Son God, and the Holy Ghost God, the Father Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Ghost Lord, the Father uncreate, the Son uncreate, and the Holy Ghost uncreate, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Ghost incomprehensible. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost, and such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. And yet, there are not three gods, nor yet three lords, nor three incomprehensibles, nor three uncreated, but one God, one Lord, one uncreated, and one incomprehensible. End of the quote from that sermon. Newman, if you know the Athanasian Creed, you know that he is chanting in adoration here the very precise articles of the Athanasian Creed. And I would just say that the ardor of his adoration absolutely excludes that these articles of the creed are only provisional, revisable hypotheses. So for Newman, there is no antagonism between the illative sense as it drives doctrinal development and definitive magisterially warranted doctrine. Professor Powell seems sometimes to set 
these two things against each other, but Newman knows how to hold them together. It is not only formal demonstration that yields definite doctrine, the illative sense can yield it as well. In one place in his longer article on tradition, Professor Pau deprecates, quote, the misconstrual of tradition as a body of authoritative, timeless, and incontestable meanings, end of quote. Well, if that's all we see in tradition, uh, we have indeed an impoverished understanding of it. But Newman sees these authoritative, timeless, and incontestable meanings as emerging from a non-rationalistic tradition that grows by the illative sense. And so I conclude with uh, a wonderful sentence from the essay on doctrinal development. I've quoted it in many different contexts over the years. Newman writes, but one aspect of revelation must not be allowed to exclude or obscure another. And Christianity is dogmatical, devotional, and practical all at once. It is esoteric and exoteric. It is indulgent and strict. It is light and dark. It is love and it is fear. End of that quote. Continuing along this line, we can say that revelation involves truth and it involves history and that we must not let the one exclude or obscure the other. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.